Amen. Take your Bibles. Go to Luke chapter 10. It's been a bit since uh, we've had a good rainstorm on a Sunday morning. So if you're a guest with us, if all of a sudden it sounds like there's a herd of buffalo on the roof, that's normal. So nothing to freak out about with that. Luke chapter 10 this morning is where we're going to be. Um, It's not an unusual message. It's certainly a um, it's certainly a, a, a familiar passage. But for whatever reason, God's kind of striking my heart um, in ways that He hadn't before while I prepared earlier this week. Uh, Luke chapter ten. Well, before I get there, let me just recap. I don't want to re-preach all these messages, but here's. Two weeks ago, we wrestled with the fact that the biggest thing that God is is doing in your life is teaching you to trust Him. That's the biggest thing. And and, and I'm going to be honest with you, because God loves you so much, and because God knows what's best for you, He is going to keep shaking you until you trust Him. Follow that up with just the reminder last week that we will never risk as we should until we believe that God is worthy of our trust. Now again, the risk word is that word that we're all super uncomfortable with, but, but in our context it really is just another word for faith, obedience, doing what we're called to do, but you're not going to be all in until you see that the one who has called you isn't just one. He is the one. He is the great I am. He is the Savior, Redeemer, Master, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, the one we have sung to all morning long. When you see him as he is, it's then that you can risk like you should. Today we're going to look at a very specific application of that. And and, and I'm just going to shoot very straight for you. If you're not doing this one, you won't do more. Okay? It's kind of like if, if, as a a seminary student, one of the hard lessons to teach some of the younger guys coming into seminary particularly, because, you know, you have your mindset, like, I'm going to. I'm going to be this pastor, and I'm going to preach to this many people, and it's going to be amazing. And the real lesson is, if you can't teach a second grader, you can't preach in front of a group of adults. So so similarly, if you're not sharing the gospel with your neighbor, don't you dare go to the mission field. Don't go on a mission trip, because you're not going to do it there either. Similarly this, if, if, if we're not doing this one, what God is calling us to, to step out of the boat, to risk, to believe in faith that he has called us. We will not be able to do any of it if we skip over this one. And it's, here's, here's how I'll encapsulate it and kind of leave this up for a while. Risking as we should looks like stepping out of our comfort to meet the needs right in front of us. So let me say this at the onset. Guilt is a terrible motivation. So, so I will not attempt in any way, shape, or form to guilt you. I will call it out a couple of times here and there as we walk through. The only guilt you should feel is if you're already planning on not being here tonight, and I don't apologize for that, you should be here tonight. 
The Ravens, in fact, will be done. In fact, they broke my quarterback last week, so the least you could do is come tonight. <laughs> Today's message, it's not, about, it's not about guilt, and not one of you should leave here inspiring just to do a little bit better because you feel bad or you feel guilty. Um, that'll last a day, maybe a week. But guilt is a horrible motivator. It'll never bring real change. So, Again, a familiar passage. Look at me, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. It says this. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, talking about Jesus, and said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? Jesus asked him. How do you read it? So, so at this point in Jesus' ministry, there's a decent amount of concern, um, criticism about what Jesus is, is saying about the law, how important the law actually is. And so here comes this expert in the law. I mean, this is, this is his job, right? And he comes to, it says, to test Jesus or to trap Jesus. So, and Jesus' response is a question. What's written in the law? How do you read it? Just to give you a little heads up. Just in case, and I don't know, but just in case you end up in a conversation with Jesus, if you ask him a question and his response is to ask you a question, <laughs> buckle up. Because he obviously knows the answer, and he's going to bring you with him. What's the law say? What interpretation do you have of the law, sir? Well, let's look at what the lawyer said, verse 27. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So, so his response, thankfully, I mean, you know some preachers, if they're asked that question, they're going to go through every law, right? All 613 that are found in the first five books of the Bible. But here's this expert in law. is like, let me summarize it for you. As we summarize the law, the entirety of the law can be found in these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The rabbis were teaching this at the time as a, an acceptable summary of the law, particularly a summary of the Ten Commandments. Okay, so, so just real quick, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's the first four of the Ten Commandments. You'll have no other uh, God before me. You will worship no false idols. You'll not take God's name in vain. You'll remember the Sabbath to keep it holy because that reminds you that you're not God. So there's love God with all your heart, soul, strength. Then the next six are wrapped up in loving your neighbor as yourself. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. All of those commandments are in there. And so it was a good summary of the Ten Commandments. It was a good summary of the entirety of the law. In fact, Jesus agrees. Look at verse 28. Jesus says to the expert in the law, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus affirms his answer. If you love him most and others best, ever heard that before? Good? You're walking, if you haven't, you're walking by the wall next week, you're going to be like, oh. <laughs> he nailed it. Jesus says, good job. Now, do it. And that's not like a surprising statement, right? That's not like this overwhelming call to something radical, but this is Jesus just saying, good, 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 good. Now do it. Just a little side note. If you are always learning and studying and taking in and reading and mastering all the modern and most recent developments within the theological realm and yet never doing any of it, you are wasting your time and God's time. 
do it. Isn't verse 29 interesting? Look at this. But wanting to justify himself, the expert asked Jesus, who's, who's my neighbor? Now, 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 I like the fact that we get a little insight here. We know that this man's trying to justify himself because suddenly he feels this tension. He, he understands that what Jesus has just called him to is, is pretty extreme, to live out the law, to, to love other, others best. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself, to love others best? What it means is to, to meet the needs of the person next to you with as much delight and time and thought and power and, and energy like you were trying to meet your own needs. That's how you're supposed to serve other people. That's how you're supposed to love other people. That's the character of God. That's how he built you. That's how he built me. And absolutely none of us is doing it right, including the lawyer. And the lawyer knows it. He knows that the command is impossible to fulfill. So, so what does, as any good lawyer would do, he tries to find a gray area. A loophole. Okay, let's make this easier, Jesus. Let's dial it back just a little bit. Where, what's the limit? Where's the line drawn? Who, in fact, is my neighbor? There's about 400 of you in this room, maybe more, this morning. I'm guessing there's about 500 lawyers right now. Who's your neighbor? Well, I can tell you who it's not. And that's what the lawyer was thinking. I can tell you who it's not. It's not my enemy. It's not the person who's cut me off in traffic. It's not the person who's posted that on Facebook about me or people that I love. It's not that. It's just people who I love. It's my family. It's my church mates. It's those that agree with me. Certainly can't be somebody who would vote for Bernie Sanders. Of course, it wouldn't, would never, my, my neighbor would never be a Trump person. My neighbor would never be somebody who's in favor of abortion. My neighbor would never be anybody who thinks that the saying, no, no, I won't go saying because that just gets too controversial. I don't want to do controversy this morning, right? I mean, come on. Who's your neighbor? See, because in fact, guys, all of us have done what the lawyer's doing. It's a universally accepted principle that we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. That, it's a universal, I mean, that every major world religion teaches that, right? Laws are built on it. Charities are developed because of it. Hospitals are dedicated in the name of this good Samaritan that we're going to read about in a moment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Every single one of us would agree, but it's not happening. It's not happening because we've established our own limits as to what we will do and what we won't do, who we will love and who it's okay that we don't love. The problem is that way of thinking not only violates the summary of the law, love others as yourself, but it also violates the principle of loving God most 
Because by drawing your own lines, what you have done is shoved him off the throne and placed yourself on it. You're in danger. Because I promise you, you might be able to push around some other earthly kings, but you take a swing at that one, he's not just going to lie down. Jesus hears this man doing what we've already done, trying to draw the line, carve out for himself a convenient way to carry this out so that others might look at him as if he's accomplishing something. And he tells a story. Another heads up. You ask Jesus a question and he answers with a story. (laughs) It's going to sting a little. That's exactly what he did. Let's walk through this story that we're all familiar with. Let's walk through. Luke, Luke, Luke 10, verse 30. Jesus took up the question. And he said, okay, a man, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him. They beat him up. They fled, leaving him half dead. Let me, let me stop just to give you a little context, right? So, so Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho is about 900 feet below sea level. They're about 17 miles apart. And so in 17 miles, to leave Jerusalem and head to Jericho, you were always going down to Jericho. But you'll find in Scripture and other places, you were also always, if you were heading to Jerusalem, you were always going up to Jerusalem. So it's not a north-south thing. It has to do with elevation. The road between Jerusalem and Jericho was known as the Bloody Way because it was a place where thieves would hide behind bushes or rocks and attack violently those who'd be passing by. So this incident that Jesus is talking about in this story was not unusual. It would have been something that he might have even ripped from the headlines. So along the way, as they went, as this man left Jerusalem and went to Jericho, the thieves fell upon him, they beat him, they stole everything he had, they left him naked and as if he was dead on the side of the road. Verse 31, priest happened to be going down that road. When the priest saw him, he passed by to the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. I think you know this, but I don't want to miss this. The people, these two people, the priest and the the Levite, these would have been coming back from Jerusalem, and they're heading home to Jericho. The priest would have been the one who was working in the temple, doing sacrifices, bringing the offerings, you know, the the incense, the bread, all of that. The Levites were the assistants. (laughs) And so the Levites would be uh, serving alongside the priests. And so these were the religious elite of the day. These were the contemporary Christian superstars of the day. These were the pastors that you find on YouTube and the worship leaders you listen to in your car. They see this man lying on the side of the road and they cross the street. Verse 33, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and he bandaged the wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. And he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and he said to him, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spent. All right, so, so before we can even continue the story, 
Jesus introduces this new character. You had the priest and the Levite, and now you've got this man, a Samaritan. Now, this nationality, this ethnicity, this people group, when, when that was even mentioned, a good Jew would be like, <laughs> don't even name the name of the Samaritans. There was this intense hatred between Jews and Samaritans. There was an intense distrust between the two Two groups. And there's a lot of reasons, just a, a couple to kind of give you a little context. When the, the Jews, the, the children of Israel, were carried off into captivity in Babylon, the Samaritans uh, ended up staying in the land. And when, when they were released from exile and allowed to go back, the exiles, the children of Israel, came home and they were greeted by Samaritans. And they were ticked that they were there. You fast forward a little bit, and the the Jews are rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans offer their help. We would love to come alongside you and and help you build your temple. And in Ezra, beginning of Ezra, it's like three, four, five, somewhere in there, the the children of Israel reject the Samaritans' help in building the temple. Uh, Later in history, the Samaritans developed their own mode of worship, their own version of worship. They used Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's it, just the law. They didn't talk about any of the prophets, but they just used those first five books of Scripture, the, the Pentateuch, and they created their own version of worship. And then, to get really tense, they built their own temple on top of Mount Gerizim. And they taught that, that in their temple, on Mount Gerizim, that was where the Lord dwelled. Dwelt, sorry, get the right verb there. Not in Jerusalem, where the Jews said in that temple, but in their temple. That's why if you go to John chapter 4, when Jesus comes into contact with the Samaritan woman at the well, right, and he's, he's interacting with her and he gets to the place where it gets a little tense, and he's like, so, so bring your husband. And she's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, ah, good, you didn't lie. That's good. You've had five, and the one you're living with ain't your husband. And her immediate response is, okay, but hold on. Your people say we're going to worship in Jerusalem, but my people say we worship here. Uh, That has nothing to do with who you're living with right now, by the way. But that shows you some of the the thought process there. Jews refused to call Samaria, Samaria a nation. Instead, called the people of Samaria a herd. Jews had a proverb that said, if I get a piece of bread from a Samaritan, it's more unclean than if I was to bathe with swine's flesh wrapped around me. Real nice. (laughs) Use that one on the school bus this week, kids. They won't even know what you're talking about. (laughs) The worst insult was for a Jew to call another Jew a Samaritan. In fact, and I didn't know this till this week, John 8, 48, the Pharisees approach Jesus and they say this, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That, that shows you what they thought about Samaritans. But here Jesus introduces this most unlikely character into the story, this hated person, the Samaritan. And the Samaritan in the story comes, and like the other two men, he sees the man in need, lying on the side of the road, bleeding, left for dead. But unlike the other two, he didn't just have sympathy, he had compassion. The difference between sympathy and compassion is sympathy is a feeling. Compassion is the feeling that leads to action. 
Here, the Samaritan shows compassion to this man, and he's so moved with compassion that he inconveniences himself in a great way. He uses his own stuff to clean the wounds. He puts the man on his own animal. He spends the rest of the day at, with this, this, this fellow at the inn. He pays two denarii. And I know, I know, for us, culturally, it's like two, two bucks, 20 bucks, 200 bucks. I don't, no, it's two days' wages. What did you make Monday and Tuesday? He shelled that right out and said, and listen, you know me, you know me, I'll be back. And when I'm back, whatever else accumulates, whatever other debt comes on the scene, I will be responsible for and I will pay. He opens a line of credit for this fella. Now let's go back to the first warning. Jesus asks him another question in verse 36. So with all that in mind, that story in mind, everything I've just laid out for you, let me ask you the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? (laughs) Guy can't even say his name. (laughs) The one who had mercy on him. Jesus said to him, go, go. And do the same. So put yourself in that situation. What keeps you from being like the Samaritan with those around you? Why why would you refuse to serve somebody who has a need and they're sitting right in front of you? Just, I want you to. I want you to feel awkward for a second with me and just let it be quiet and answer that question in your heart. Why would you not meet the need of somebody who is obviously in need and you have the ability to meet that need and they're sitting right in front of you? Why? Did some brainstorming with staff during our devotions this week and asked that question and there was a number of awesome answers like fear, Ah, okay, there's a lot of fear. I don't know how this happened. I don't, maybe he was a part. Maybe this is a trick. Maybe the people who did this to him are still around. I'm exposing myself to danger, some level of danger, if I help this man who's laying on the side of the road. So maybe it's fear. Maybe. Maybe you're guilty of noticing. You see, but you don't really see, right? Sometimes we do that intentionally. Oh, come on. You do that intentionally sometimes. There's a few places, particularly in Frederick, that you've read the signs that people are holding without looking them in the eye. Do you see? But you don't really see. Um, (laughs) Maybe. Maybe you're just in a rush. Maybe your schedule's too jam-packed. You don't have enough time to be able to stop. Um, there's this uh, awesome parable that is told of a church's youth pastor. There's this church's youth pastor who's on his way to a meeting one evening. There's one youth pastor in this room who's laughing and giggling uncontrollably right now. I can hear him. And on his way, he's noticed one of our college students on the side of the road with their hood up. And as he drove by, he waved nicely and went to his meeting. And while sitting in the meeting, he thought, ah, shoot. Hey, man, you good? (laughs) He was good. 
He said I could share that story. I'm not calling him out on purpose, I promise. We already mocked him in staff meeting enough. (laughs) Sometimes our lives are so jam-packed, right? You're so busy rushing from one thing to the other. You make it to the end of your day, and all of a sudden something triggers in your mind. You're like, oh, my goodness, I totally blew that one, right? Maybe, Maybe you don't think there's anything that you can do to actually help the situation. Part of that can be you think that maybe that person is just too far gone and is going to waste anything that you give to them to help them, whether that be your time, energy, or finances. Whatever you invest in them, they're they're just going to waste it. We have this fantastic philosopher that was in staff meeting this, this week named Mitch Osterhaus. He was sharing a story, and he wanted credit for this. I'm giving it to him. So uh, It's a joke. Sorry. Staff will like it. He said... Our job isn't to determine what they will do with it. Our job's just to do it. He's going to put out his book next week, so get ready. Maybe, maybe you're filled with questions. What happens, what happens after I approach this guy? What, what's next? I mean, maybe it's the fear of the unknown. What if I don't have answers for what's next? What am I getting myself into? And then, I, I just don't like the person. I disagree with them. They make me uncomfortable. The group that this person represents, we have significant differences. Here's something that the Samaritan recognized in this story that you and I need to recognize. The image of God was not given to us at our redemption. The image of God was given to us the moment we were created. And so that means every individual, no matter what their belief system, worldview, no matter what heinous things they may have done or refused to do, all of those things don't matter when you consider it because you're not the arbiter of who gets treated well and who doesn't. The reality is all have been created in the image of God and are worthy of dignity. God has placed individuals right in front of us and asked us to be his hands and feet. There are people at your workplace that you are the one who's supposed to be serving them. You know how I know? Because you work there. There's people in your community, whether that be sporting events that you go to with your kids, your grandkids, there's people within your immediate community who you rub shoulders with regularly, and you know what? You are going to be the vessel that God uses to reach them. You know why? Because he's placed you there. There are kids on your school bus and in your school who you really rub you the wrong way, but the only way that they're ever going to see their value in the name of Jesus Christ is when you open your mouth and speak that name. That's why you're there. The risk, as it should look, looks like stepping out of our comfort zone. I know it's uncomfortable to be that one, right? But let me, let me, let me challenge you with something. I heard this at a conference years ago, and I just heard it again a couple weeks ago. The reality is, even in talking about Jesus, the average length of time that is awkward and uncomfortable is all of 30 seconds. And some of you have lived a lifetime of being awkward. 30 seconds ain't much. As long as you understand why you're doing it. The needs that God has placed right in front of you are yours to meet through the power of Christ in you. 
Are you? I know I said at the beginning, but Frank, you said you weren't going to make us feel guilty. Well, no, that, that, if you feel guilty right now, that's the Holy Spirit, because I'm really trying not to do it. So, hmm. Hey, you know what? Do something with it. Do something. But, but that can't be your motivation. Because instead of, of guilt being your motivation, what you need to understand is that the motivation for that kind of risk can never be guilt, but it's loving God most because he loved us first. You know what Jesus did in this story that's really subtle? He told the story in such a way that the lawyer was the man on the side of the road. It's at the heart of the Christian message, right? This is crazy. So the man says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Uh, this guy got beat up, and then the Samaritan came. Who, who was the neighbor to that man who got beat up? The Samaritan. So if you do the whole equals plus A equals B, B equals A, it comes out to, hey, guess, guess, guess who you are in this story, friend? You're lying in the ditch, bloodied and beaten. That's the heart of the Christian message. That is the life that Jesus demonstrated by going to the cross for you. And spiritually, every single one of us is like that man. We are all dead in our trespasses and in our sins. But Jesus stepped in into our dangerous world, and he came down our road, and even though we were his enemies, even though we were sinners, he was moved with compassion. I think it's important you understand, he didn't come at the risk of his life. He came at the cost of his life. He paid the debt that we could never have paid for ourselves. And in this story, what Jesus is doing is pointing us to the very kind of love that he would show us on the cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And and it's that love, that mercy, that compassion that motivates us to meet the needs that are right in front of us every day. What needs? If you have to ask that, I think you're just playing a game. You know what needs are right in front of you every day. What will you do to meet them? What will you do to meet them? Christ is calling you to step out of the boat to a place where yet there's difficulty and there's fear. There's storms even. You're going to face your own inability. But when you get out of the boat, there's only one person who can reach you, and his name is Jesus, and he's not going to let you down. Would you pray with me, Father? Please, just in the quietness of this moment, I ask that you would do a work in our hearts. Your spirit would apply these words and cause us to love you more. Just in the quietness now, Lord, would you work? Lord, I pray as we wrestle with what it is you would have us to do, I pray that most importantly, we would not wrestle out of a position of guilt or shame because in Christ, guilt and shame have already been removed. But instead, I pray that we would be motivated out of a a reminder of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. May we serve 
in such a way. May we step out of our boat. May we get uncomfortable, not for the sake of being uncomfortable, but because we know that it will put a smile on your face. God, there are people around us who desperately need you, and we sit here with our mouths shut because we're uncomfortable. Lord, would you give us the courage we need? Not because we memorize a certain plan, not because we have a program, not because somebody else is standing next to us, but because you dragged us out of the ditch. God, may we sing of your grace and your mercy at the top of our lungs. It's in your matchless name I pray. Amen. Where you are, would you stand and sing with us?